God, we come to you offering prayers from our hearts and minds and from deep within our souls. On days that we question you and the way things are, we rejoice that you do not abandon us. On days when we can't seem to see the gifts of this world, we are grateful that you do not give up on us and that you continue to see and value us. As we navigate the world and our lives of faith, we pray that you will continue to walk alongside us, giving us strength to be humble and compassionate in our service to others. Remind us of Christ's call to us to love you and to love our neighbor. We are not called to judge, but to love. We are not called to be forceful in our displays of faith, but to love. We are not called to love only those who share our values, but to love all others. We are not called to love only those we have deemed worthy, but to love as you love, with mercy and goodness. God, it is difficult to know exactly what this love looks like. We ask you to help us discern your presence as we seek to see you and others. Open our eyes, minds, and hearts to see others as you see them, as precious and loved, regardless of any label we can imagine. May we see ourselves as you see us, capable of being your hands and feet on earth and sharing your love with all of creation. God, keep us and guide us in our lives as disciples of Jesus the Christ and as we continue to work toward a world where peace and hope live abundantly. It is in your name we offer these prayers this morning. of scripture this morning begins with 2 Kings. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from a skin disease. 
Now the Arameans on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, go then and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his skin disease? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away saying, I thought that for me, he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, wash and be clean. So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. The witness of scripture continues with the gospel according to Luke. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick who are there, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off 
in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. The Bible contains some of the best stories ever told. Ironic, wry, revealing, truthful, surprising, hopeful, life-giving, if not always easy stories that both illumine our living 
and reveal the shadow side of our living. And today we have heard two such stories. The first from 2 Kings and the second from the one proclaimed King of Kings. Naaman is the lead actor in the first story with best supporting roles going to an unnamed Jewish girl and a prophet whose name we know but who does not even appear on stage. In its well-crafted telling, done with humor and irony, much is revealed that most people would just as soon not face, but which must be faced if people are ever going to be well. We recall that Naaman is a well-heeled and well-armored officer employed by the king of Aram. He's in a part of the world that seems to know more about war than peace. And the Aramean armies had gone raiding into Israel in the past and still pose a credible threat. On one of their previous raids, they captured a young Jewish girl who was brought back in servitude to Naaman's wife. For all his power in armor and in riches, Naaman is powerless over the debilitating disease that threatens him in every way possible. Desperate for a cure and unable to secure one in Aram, Naaman is dispatched by his king to go to the king of Israel. Why that most unlikely choice? Israel is an object to be plundered, not a subject to be solicited. The story tells us remarkably that it is the young Jewish slave girl, powerless by all conventional accounting, who holds out hope for the one who holds her captive. She tells Naaman's wife, that there is one in Israel who can cure him. And we marvel at this turn in the story. Why would she care? Does she see with uncanny wisdom that she and Naaman have something in common? They are both held captive. The story doesn't say, but we do ponder her compassion for the other. Since armor and riches can only resist what comes from without and does not address what is rotting from within, the king of Aram, in an unusual recognition of candor for kings, as much as admits he is powerless to help Naaman. And so he sends him packing with a fistful of dollars and a wardrobe fit for a king. That's the currency in which kings trade. So that he can ask the king of Israel if he could locate this medicine man to cure Naaman. That's an audacious move. And no one is surprised at the response from Israel's king. Weary 
and wary of the Arameans, the king of Israel believes this is a trick. He knows he cannot cure Naaman's leprosy and believes that when he fails, the Aramean regime will spin that failure into justification for another raid onto Israel's soil. The story subtly, yet very powerfully, reveals the limits of armor and might and kingly conniving. And it's not lost on any of us that we have arrived at this point in the story thanks to an enslaved Jewish girl who has proclaimed, you are not without hope. Well, somehow word gets to the prophet Elisha that Israel's king and the palace are in an uproar. And so he tells the king of Israel to send Naaman to him. Identified as the man of God and the only one in the story named so, Elisha takes Naaman off the king's hands and invites him to stop by. Still convinced that might and money will get him cured, Naaman and his entourage march to Elisha's front sidewalk and park their chariots, awaiting for Elisha to come out and work his wondrous cure. Elisha, in another rich, humorous moment in the story, doesn't even come out of the house. See, I think Elisha, having seen a chariot of fire blaze across the sky, is less impressed by Naaman's little military parade. By way of a messenger, Elisha sends out. Naaman is told to take a dip in the Jordan seven times, and his skin will be soft as a baby's cheek. Believing he has not been accorded the respect due someone of his high caliber. Amazing, isn't it? How skewed one's perspective can become about self-importance and status. Angry about all that. Naaman turns tail and begins hurling rage at Elisha and insults at Israel. If Elisha were some sort of prophet, he would understand how important I am, and he would attend to me directly. Naaman just cannot get over himself, can he? After personal invective, Naaman expands his attack. The country where I come from has the Missouri and Mississippi rivers flowing in through them. Israel has nothing more than this puny Bishop's Creek, which runs dry half the year. We would not miss the delicious irony in the story. That it's Naaman's pride and arrogance that are eating away at him faster than the leprosy. But irony's not finished. As Naaman's hope comes from another set of servants. 
with wisdom far surpassing their appointed station in life, Naaman's servant, servants use a little reverse psychology on him by saying, you know, Naaman, if Elisha had told you to go and do something difficult, you would have done it. Since we've come this far and we're close to the Jordan, you might as well go ahead and take seven shallow dives and see what happens. It couldn't hurt. And you know, it might even help. And Naaman does. And as he clambers up from the riverbank, his skin, says the story, is perfect. Well, there is enough food for thought here for all of us to fill our plates. And even if some of the dish might not always be palatable, it may still be good for us. Naaman's story is a good reminder that pride, power, position, predisposition can morph into bias and prejudice that not only rots away the human soul, but also can destroy any group or any nation. Naaman's story reminds us of the power of armor. We can hide our brokenness, our wounds, under all kinds of protective covers, but that does not mean that the wounds are gone. To be sure, we do well to know with whom we can share vulnerability and how and when to do that, for it can be risky to admit our less than perfect selves, even though every one of us knows we are all less than perfect. And sadly, sometimes the church opts for the surface rather than the subterranean. But it is good to remember that any assembling around a table, as Jesus knew very well, is always a gathering in which we all bring every part of who we are, the polished and the perfected and the wounded and the hurting parts in every one of us. Naaman's story is a reminder that faith is always, in part, a dismantling of pride. Faith is always, in part, letting go of a sense of entitlement and privilege. Faith is always, in part, recognizing that as the Apostle Paul wrote years later, we all only see, in part. As Peter Marty has written, Blind spots in all our perspectives are inevitable. It's admitting to their presence that's the beginning of a better world. Naaman's story is a good reminder that the road to healing begins when we recognize the God of all creation is greater than our best thoughts. And so the avenue of healing begins with humility, even if, like Naaman, we might think such humility is silly. Langston Hughes has written, I've known rivers, ancient 
dusky rivers. And Liv Larson Andrews observes, you can love a river without casting doubts upon the potential healing properties of other waters. But if your love for your homeland and your home water is tainted by nationalism and militarism as it is for Naaman, a simple thing becomes a tricky thing. Finding miracles in other waters or through other people is scary and unfamiliar. Thanks be to God who moves in all the rivers of planet Earth and brings healing through humble actions. Naaman's story is a reminder that Elisha offered more to Naaman than what is skin deep. He wanted him to be well. And the story reveals that when Naaman came up out of the waters, gratitude had replaced pride. Humility had replaced self-importance. Worship had replaced arrogance. Generosity had replaced entitlement. So much more than leprosy was washed downriver. And the story reminds us through the actions of Elisha, the identified man of God, that God can work for the restoration of those we might consider opponent and adversary can work for healing in places we might consider lost causes. That is a possibility that, as Daniel Hawk observes, prompts readers to resist the hateful caricatures and the leprous demonizing of enemies, even when the demonizing is well-deserved. And when we get to Luke's story of sending out a group of messengers, 70 or so, and not just the original 12, we remember the little Jewish girl and the entourage with Naaman, and we realize the centrality of the supporting cast. Jesus does not do a solo performance. He has a cast around him. 12, 70, 3,000, the early church, all these years later, this church. We note Jesus sends disciples in peace and for the purpose of being a healing and hospitable presence wherever they go. Now, Jesus is wise enough to know that peace, healing, and reconciliation may not be met favorably by those who operate from a perspective of cynicism, hostility, and division. Yet he sends them out anyway as a community to bear good news. 
There is so much to ponder in this story, not the least of which is that Christianity is not something you can force into people, only lovingly offer to people. For Jesus says, if you will not be received, then move on. Christianity loses its hospitality when its tone becomes hostile and judgmental. But most importantly, this story of Jesus and the disciples, like the story of Naaman and Elisha, is a reminder that contrary to the modern narrative, sovereign individualism is not the greatest value. As Alan Noble has written in his book, You Are Not Your Own, once I'm liberated from all social, moral, natural, and religious values, I become responsible for the meaning of my own life. This burden manifests as a desperate need to justify our own lives through identity crafting and expression. And the upshot is a deep fatigue, weariness, and chronic exhaustion. Because it is tough to be on the hamster wheel of constant self-invention, self-creation, and self-marketing. This is the fundamental lie of modernity, that we are our own. Jesus sends disciples out precisely because we are not our own. We belong to Christ, who gives us a life to live that makes us well, and along the way, helps to make others well. It's a life that is present where humans are hurting. It's a life that's listening where people are lonely. It's a life that's comforting for those who are wounded. It's a life that is advocating for those who are silenced. It's a life that's welcoming for those who've been rejected. It's a life that's honest with those who are estranged. A long time ago, Jesus asked, do you want to be well? That's a very good question. And it cannot be realized without humility, healing, hospitality. That's the story the Bible tells. And it's a really, really good story.